you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 6. We'll be in verse 35. Last week was Easter, uh, even as Pastor opened up our service today by saying he is risen, he is risen indeed. Uh, that is always a good thing to proclaim. The Greek Orthodox Church is celebrating Easter this week, and so uh, we, can, we can spoil the event for them. He is risen, uh, they don't need to worry, uh, he is risen indeed. So uh, last week, because of Easter, a lot of churches did a very odd thing, especially larger churches. They, they did, um, it's apparently something that, that many more churches are doing, they do these Easter egg helicopter drops. And so they rent a helicopter and they invite many, many people to their church and they drop little Easter eggs to them, okay? And, and the Easter eggs, I'm sure, are filled with candy or toys or, or whatever. Um, we decided this year specifically not to go that route. Uh, we, for a couple of technical reasons, um, one, apparently it wasn't in the budget. Uh, I was bummed by that. Um, but apparently we wouldn't have done it anyways. Simply from a, uh, from a standpoint of prudence, if we did something like this, I, I don't think that I could help myself. We would not just drop eggs, but in the spirit of Job 2.10, where Job says, shall we not receive good from God and also receive evil? I think that we should have dropped actual eggs on people as well and, and you know, say, this is the gospel. There's good and there's, there's evil at times too. So, um, so perhaps from a prudent standpoint, we, sh we shouldn't have done that either. I, I don't know that I can be trusted with that sort of responsibility. But there's another real reason why we wouldn't do something like that. At worst, it is an absolutely silly ploy to get people to show up at your church simply to have a crowd there. It is a numbers booster, and for many of these churches, that is really what they care about. It seems like they are pandering to the lowest common denominator simply in order to get their to get people in and through their doors. It becomes part of the ethos and the pathos of their church. Whatever draws people is what is good. Whatever gets them through the door is okay to do. That sort of populism isn't biblical Christianity, and so we would never do that. That's at worst, though. At best, at best, something like that can be seen as, as a ploy to get people into the church for good reasons. It perhaps might be viewed as, as a John 4 or a John 6 thing where Jesus talks about giving water and, and giving bread to people. He gives them what they need so that he can start having a conversation about what they truly need. But even if that is the case, I still feel as though this is a great way to confuse people. At best, it simply confuses the gospel. At first, the church says, here's some worldly stuff you want, and then they second that by saying, here is some spiritual stuff you need. And eventually, the two will become mixed. People who are on the outside will be very confused by this. The church gives me this, and the church gives me that, and they're saying that this is different than that, but the church gave me both things. What am I supposed to do? Eventually, those people who are on the outside, who are confused by this, come onto the inside, and they are confused about what is good and what is necessary and what is worldly and what is wrong confuses what we want with what we need. We want toys, chocolate, fun, entertainment, and great spectacle. What we need is eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. This kind of confusion is real. It can be permanent in churches, and it is inherently dangerous. We think, we, we know, that we have better things to give to people than that. We have better things to do with our time and better things to do with our resources than to budget a helicopter to drop eggs on people, even if we get to drop real eggs on people. It's still not a good, good no, that wasn't funny anymore, okay. So, 
even if we had money for that, we wouldn't do it. We have the best gift in the world. Why, why do lesser things? We will get to the gospel. We will get to the gift of eternal life. We will, we will hand them bread that doesn't perish and water that, that doesn't deny quenching your thirst, that quenches you completely. It is living water and bread of life that we offer. And Jesus, so far in the book of John, specifically in this sixth chapter, is being presented as our great provision from God. He is the thing that doesn't simply appeal to what we want, but he himself is the thing that we need, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He is not Moses here. He is not the person you go to to get the thing you need. He is not Moses who gives you manna from heaven. He is indeed the manna from heaven. He is the very thing that sustains you while you are in the wilderness. So today, let us consider what it means for us to have Jesus as the bread of life as we consider John 6, 35 through 40, if you would read with me. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of our God. Friends, from these verses, let us first consider our location. Let's first consider our location. The more I read John, the more I read the New Testament, the more I am absolutely convinced that the Old Testament is super important. Not like minorly important, not like you should read it because it's spiritually good for you, not like you can read it because there's some awesome stories in the Old Testament. We can talk to our kids about Noah and Ehud and all these other great adventures that that we have. That's all fine and dandy, but the Old Testament is imperative for understanding the things that the New Testament is talking about. We can talk about Jesus being the bread of life, but understanding where that statement comes from and what it's referring to tells us much about what we are to understand about our location. Where does this idea of the bread of life come from? Well, given that he's been talking about Moses and given that he's been talking about manna, it clearly comes from the people being in the wilderness. God calls his people out of Egypt. He delivers them out of Egypt and takes them to the wilderness. Immediately after, the Red Sea crushes the Egyptian army in chapter 14. They sing a song of deliverance in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. And the very first statement we find in chapter 16 is grumbling and complaining about them being found in a desert. The people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had, this is such a beautiful way, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. They said if God was going to kill us, it would have been better for him to have done it in Egypt because we had pots of meat and we had bread. Instead, he brought us out here so we can just die with hunger. God gave them, graciously then, manna. Later, he would also give them water from a rock. Not less than one chapter later. But why do these things? God's not a fool. Listen, it's not like the 
It's not like God didn't know what he was going to do with his people, but even more than that, it's not like God didn't know the geography of the region, and it's not like God didn't plan the geography of the region. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He could have made Saudi Arabia nothing but a jungle so he, if he had so chosen to, but instead he leads his people into an absolute desert. He does this for a reason. Moses tells us what that reason is later in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, in a very, very famous passage. You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He did this to show them that they need him in the world. They need him. They couldn't survive without his good hand. They couldn't live without the instructions of where to go and how to to walk. God took the bread away to show Israel all they truly needed was him. They didn't need a source of water. He would bring water from a rock. They didn't really need food. He would make food miraculously appear. All they needed was to heed his voice and he would take care of them. How does this apply to us today, friends? You are very likely to think in this day and age that you can get along just fine in this world without Christ. You're liable to think that you can support your family, that you can give them good shelter. You've got indoor plumbing. You've got electricity and gas to keep you warm in the winter and cool in the summer. You have a refrigerator that can keep food for a very long time. Walmart is right there, so you can go down and you can buy as much so-so produce as you want and a whole bunch of cheap freezer meals. You have all of these things at the tip of your fingers. What more could you possibly need? And Jesus is trying to tell you, even in modern day America, you are in the wilderness and you need me. These things don't give you life. They make you less dead. They might progress your life a little bit, but they won't actually give you life. They are distractions from the true life that Christ has come to give you You're simply in the wasteland, the desert, and the trinkets of the world, the bright and shiny things of this world are nothing but little points of hope that ultimately fade and wither. They're nothing but mirages. As you walk through this world, you think that you have water coming to you. You think that you have food coming to you. God can get rid of those in a second. In a heartbeat, he can take away all of his provision from you. You don't need those things. What you need is Jesus for life. You can't squeak out a living here any more than the Israelites could there. It's not just that these things can't satisfy, they can't, but it's that they're wholly insufficient to give true and lasting life. They will never actually give you true and lasting life. They will always fade, they will always go away. Listen, let's be very clear. This whole thing is a metaphor for what you need in the wilderness. This is why Jesus, although he calls himself the bread of life here, talks about water as well because that is exactly what the Israelites were given in the desert. They were given bread and they were given water. In a place where no bread and no water exists, God miraculously provided for them. And now Jesus says, I have been sent down to the wasteland again, just like the manna has, so that you would have bread and that you would have water, so that you would have everything that you need. You do not live on bread at all. 
You live on the will of God, on the very word of his sustenance for you. So when we thank God for food, we're not thanking God that food happened to show up on our plate. We're thanking God that he provided that for us in a real and tangible way. And Jesus Christ does all the more for us. He gives us eternal life. This is life that can't be taken away. It can't be faded or snuffed out. Never lacks for any good thing. Listen to what he says. You shall never hunger. You shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's no more. Now again, that's metaphorical. In this world, you will hunger and you will thirst. We will take care of that after service back in potluck. Okay? We will take care of that. But Jesus is the only one who can take care of what you need in this wilderness. Real hunger and real thirst, the very things that you have to have in order to gain life, Jesus is the one who fills those. There are no more mirages. This is the real and true thing. And so fulfilled are the words of Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. In Christ, God is making a covenant with you that he will always be with you, that his love over you will never fail, and that you will lack no good thing, even as you walk through a desert that is filled with trinkets and toys and nice, glittery, shiny objects that promise you life and are empty. God says, I will always be with you. That is what our location says to us. But why can we understand Jesus as being a fulfillment of Isaiah? Because we shouldn't just consider our location, but we should consider our likeness. Listen to what Jesus says here in verses 36 and 37. I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Our likeness is here like the people of Israel. We are the people that God has called to himself. He looks at these, these people who surround him. He says, listen, you saw me. You, you saw me do multiplying of the bread. You saw these miracles, but you don't believe in me. Then he turns around and he says, all who the Father gives me will come to me. That coming is belief. If you come to Christ, you believe in Christ. The world starts with a helicopter drop. It mixes in some loud, well-produced music, a dash of irreverent battle, babble, a heavy dose of jokes, some drinks and donuts, a couple of foosball tables for the kids, and all of a sudden they've got a crowd and they call it a church. Jesus has people reject him and he blows it off and he says it's not a problem. He is up and filled with confidence. Confidence because the Father will give him. He doesn't have to work for people's affection. Jesus does the will of the Father, and the Father will give them to him. There is a whiff here of John 10, 25 through 28, and see the connection here between the coming of the sheep to Jesus and their believing. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Here the image has changed a little bit, but it's the same theme. You've seen me, but you don't believe me, and you don't believe me because you're not one of those that the Father has given to me. This is nothing more than we just got done talking about in Sunday school, election. God chose Israel. He brought them out. He crushes Egypt. He crushes the people in the promised land so that Israel can accept the promised land. They can gain the inheritance of the promised land. So now God in Christ is electing people to come to faith. And he looks at these people and he says, you've seen me, but you don't believe in me. You don't believe in me because God has not given you to me. Is exactly what Psalm 2, 7 through 8 is saying. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. God the Father has a gift for his son. That gift are his people. And he hands them over to Jesus. You are a precious possession of Jesus Christ. You are his possession, which does mean that he is Lord. And he is a kind Lord and he is a good Lord, but you are to serve that Lord. He is your master and your commander, but you are also precious in his sight. That doesn't mean that he will simply welcome us. the, The antidote here is not saying that whoever God gives, when you come to accept Jesus, that Jesus will take you in. That's not what it means. The picture here, the the word that's used here for cast out is used most often, even in English, for demons. That's probably what we know it best from. Jesus, what? Casts out demons. He doesn't, he doesn't keep demons from coming into people so much. That's not casting out demons. That's preventing demons. He casts out demons. The demons are in those people and he takes them out. What Jesus is saying is the Father gives people to me and there is nothing that can happen that would make me throw them out. Listen, if you are a child of God, if you have trusted in Christ, if you know his love and you have the Spirit of God working on you, be reminded of this today. Christ will not reject you. He will not. This is one of the great temptations of Satan. For those who don't know Jesus, he wants to make Jesus very small. He wants to make him just like every other moral or ethical leader in the history of the world. He's not the son of God. You can forget that kind of stuff. Listen, that's just things that the church made up in the 2nd and 7th and 4th and 18th centuries in order to make Jesus really good so that they can have a whole bunch of money and all those other historical lies that he has sprinkled upon the world. Jesus is just another bloke, just like Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. and Jonas Salk. He does nice things. He does good things. You can listen to him but there's no reason to really believe in him. For unbelievers, man, Satan will make Jesus as small as he possibly can, but for believers, he oftentimes will make Jesus very, very large. So large and so good that you will be hesitant to think that he can ever accept you. And he will whisper in your ear, do you honestly think that a God who is so holy and pure and righteous, who is so kind and generous and loving, one who is so good as Jesus would ever, ever put up with you and your baggage. That that he will accept you. He worked so hard for your salvation. And here you are, you filthy little creature. You think that he won't kick you out? That is what Satan oftentimes does to believers. And Jesus is saying, no, I won't. He might make 
Jesus is big, but Jesus is bigger than that. His mercy is more. His grace is more. And his love is more. You can be as impure as you want to be. You can be as filthy as you want to be, but you repent and he will welcome you, friend. He will never, ever cast you out. You are his precious, precious possession. So first, know that you are his precious possession, but also this implies very strongly that you should be incredibly humble. Again, we talked about this in Sunday school, but it is worth repeating. The very fact that God chose you to give you as a gift to his son means that your role in salvation is incredibly small. Do you need to respond? Yes. Does that need to be your free choice? Yes. Do you need to believe? Yes. The Bible holds that out. You believe, but you believe because God gave you to the son. You believe because you heard the voice of your master because your master was set before the foundation of the world to be Jesus Christ and you followed him. This means that you have to be incredibly humble. Did you come to faith in Jesus Christ because you're more noble than the people who denied him? Because you're more moral than the people who deny him? Because you're greater than the people who denied him? Because you're wiser than the people who deny him? What is it inherent in you, friend, that makes you so glorious and wise that you could know that Jesus is God on high and saved you from your sins while all the other pigs wallow in the mud? Nothing. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing in you that deserves salvation and nothing in you that can bring you to salvation. Be humble. Absolutely humble. God the Father has given you as a precious possession to the Son. You didn't put yourself there. You, you are, honestly, in this verse, you are incredibly passive. You are a thing passed from one eternal being to another excuse me, from one eternal person to another eternal person. That's it. Now, you do need to respond in faith and you do need to believe and you do need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But to think that you do that because, or because you do that, that God accepts you and treasures you, that makes for pride and it makes for damnation. To think that you do that because God has chosen you that makes praise for God and it puts you in the right place before him. Be humble. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, we are like Israel in this. Moses says to them that God did not choose you because you were more in number than any of the people of the Lord. That's not the reason why God set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of the people, but it is because the Lord loves you. Why did the Lord love you and choose you? Why does he love you? Listen to that language of Moses. Why does God love you? He loves you because he loves you. He doesn't love you because you're noble. He doesn't love you because you're smart. He doesn't love you because you believe. He loves you because he loves you. And he's not talking about the world there. He's talking about Israel. We were called by God, not because of our goodness or might, but simply because God has loved us. We are like Israel unworthy of salvation, and yet being called by God. Next, let us consider our license. Let us consider our license. Why is it that we sing, Christ will hold me fast, he will hold me fast? We sing it because it's true. It's clearly true from the Bible. It's true from the verses that we're singing here today. I will never cast you out. Christ will hold you fast. And we can think of the reasons why he will hold us fast because he is immensely loving. 
He loves us so much that he was willing to die in order to gain possession of us, in order to redeem us. That's how much he loves us. He loves us because that sacrifice was good and righteous and holy and acceptable before God. He loves us because his mercy is more, even as we've sung today. We could accept all of those reasons, and all of those reasons are good and true, and none of them are found in this passage for Jesus explaining why he hangs on to you. He hangs on to you not because he loves you here. That's true. But that's not the reason he gives. He doesn't hang on to you because his sacrifice is sufficient. That's not what he says. He doesn't hang on to you because his mercy is so great. That's not what it says. Why does he hang on to you? For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He hangs on to you because his father said, this is precious. You don't lose this. Son, you don't leave it in the car. You don't leave it in the park. You don't lose it between the cushions and the couch. You hang on to this. This is yours. When we talk about license, we often talk about being afforded the opportunity to do something legally, right? So we get a driver's license. You turn of age, you go down. The the state of Michigan gives you a little test. You sign a couple of forms. You get a license that says that you're legally allowed to drive on the road. Now, many of us realize that before we got licenses, we were perfectly capable of getting behind a car and driving. And many of us know that the majority of the people who are out there driving have no ability to drive, even if the state of Michigan has given them a license, right? It has nothing to do with ability, and it's all with your your license to do something. The state saying it's okay for you to do something. And we talk about our license quite often. That's all we want to talk about. All we want to talk about is what we can and can't do. Many arguments among Christians arise because of their desire to do things that Scripture doesn't forbid or their want to abstaining from things that Scripture doesn't command. That's fine. That's fine. You want to be able to listen to the music you want? Go ahead. You want to be able to drink the things you want to drink? You want to eat the things you want to eat? You go right ahead. But let us never think that we get more license than Christ does. Christ is the Lord of glory. He is the one who has created the world by the power of his voice. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the conqueror of sin and death. He is the one who has created all things and sustains all things. He is the redeemer of Israel, the redeemer of the church. He is the king on high. He is the beloved son. And he is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And he is here constrained to do the will of his father. Do you think you have any right to do anything but that? You have none. You have no license to do anything outside of the will of God. So many times Christians are taken up with conversations and, and complaints and criticisms and working back and forth about we want to do what we want to do and scripture doesn't forbid it so I should be allowed to do it. And it's true. But honestly, we sound more like pseudo-redeemed Frank Sinatra's walking around singing my way instead of actually being the children of God who act like Christ who says, no, I will do this because my father wills it. Friends, if Christ has come to do the father's will, Shouldn't that be the guiding principle in our life? It was a priority for Jesus because Jesus was sent on a mission. Notice the language that's here. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says, the whole point of me coming down from heaven, God sent me on a mission to do this. My mission was that the people that God was going to give me, I would collect, I would take hold of in my hands, and I would never, ever lose them. That is the mission. So I don't, I don't fail in that mission because I want to do what the will of my Father is. But we too are sent. 
At the end of John's gospel, in John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus will pray for us as well as his disciples this way. He prays to God, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Jesus Christ was sent into the world to do the will of God. We then are sent into the world to do the will of Christ. And in doing so, we do the will of God. That is why you are here. So stop worrying about secondary things and being preoccupied with Christian freedom. It's fine. I, I, I would love to spend time talking about Christian freedom with you all. I think that it's important and it's necessary to talk about. But it is way down the list of things that you ought to be concerning your life with. This is exactly the problem that occurs in Romans and in Corinth, in Rome and in Corinth, in the book of Romans and in the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, specifically 1st Corinthians. People wanted to eat meat that had been offered to an idol. And some Christians in Christian freedom said, hey, there's one God, so those things are being offered to idols, those idols don't actually exist, it's cheap meat, let's eat meat. And other Christians were like, I don't know, that's kind of like idolatry, right? I want to abstain from that. I don't want to partake of that meat, and you shouldn't partake of that meat. And Paul came back, and he said, you guys are all fools. And he takes a long time to explain this, both in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. He says, the issue here is not whether or not you eat or you don't eat, but the issue is the love that you have for your brothers or sisters. It's the love you have for the people. And he, he does explain to them, there is no God but God. And so this meat offered to idol is no more than just meat. And if you want to eat it, you should be allowed to eat it. But he says the larger issue here is you doing the will of God. It's not your Christian liberty. It is the fact that you ought to be loving one another and you're clearly not. You're either condemning one another or you're judging one another. But no matter how you cut it, you're looking down on your brothers and sisters. Instead, you should have bared their burdens. You should show them hospitality and kindness. You should outdo one another in showing honor. Remind one another of the gospel and build one another up. Paul finishes in Romans 14 by saying this, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So if you want to drink, drink. If you want to eat, eat. But by God, do his will. Love one another. Walk in holiness and righteousness with one another. Upbuild the church. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. Preach the gospel to one another. Encourage one another. Building up the church until it reaches a point of maturity. These are the things that matter because these are the wills of God. These are the very things that God has told you you have to do. Christ has not made us free so that we can worry about ourselves. Christ has made us free that we might do the will of God. The license here is not, is not to do something legally. The license here is to do something that we could never do before. We can do the will of our Father. So let's do that. Our license is the same as Jesus Christ's. He has sent us into the world to do the will of his Father. That brings us lastly to consider our life verses 39 through 40. Jesus, is, he finishes his understanding of himself in these verses as the bread of life by saying that he will lose absolutely nothing that the Father has given to him, but he will raise it up at the last day. And so he says this kind of twice in verse 39 and 40. He says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all, at all, 
that he has given to me, which he has said before, but he adds something new here, but will raise it up on the last day. Verse 40 is a clarification. This is the will of my Father. The will who sent me is my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So the giving of God, of a people, these are the same people who will see and will believe, right? So the other people who came before and Jesus said, I said to you, you saw me, but you don't believe. They were not given because the people who God gives to Jesus will see him and will believe. And they are given eternal life. And he says, I will raise them up on the last day. These are truly great promises. But there are some warnings here that we should consider for our lives. First, friend, you need to avoid thinking that the here and the now is all you get. If we are to believe that this place is a wilderness, we have to believe that Christ has something better than this world for us. And that has to redefine how we think of our possessions, how we think of our money, how we think of our time, how we think of our abilities. Christ has given you these things not to spend it on the things of the world, but to spend it on eternal matters and reality that matters much, much more than simply trinkets and gold lockets. There is better stuff to come. The idea of raising us up on the last day is proof positive of that. He says, I will give you better things. The resurrection is always held out as a better reality. It's difficult for us to believe. We have been conditioned in our society for some reason, especially within Christianity, to think that our souls really matter, but our bodies don't. But the continual hope that the gospel holds out for us is not just that our souls will be with Christ in heaven, but that our bodies will one day meet us there, that we will have physical reality to us. And so the physical reality that is coming must absolutely be better than the physical reality that is here. Friend, you need to have this in your mind to keep you from the things of the world. Listen, 1 John 2 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus promises you a better world. And holding on to that promise is a really excellent way of not being found in the trappings of this world. There is better, better, better world out there for you. But second, do not think that death or suffering can separate you from Christ. Jesus says something very, very odd here. He says, I will give them eternal life and I will never cast them out. I will hold them close to me forever. And he turns around and in the very next breath, he says, I will raise them up. Why does he say I will raise them up? He says it because you're going to die. Now, if the Lord doesn't tarry and he returns in the meantime, we might not. But the vast majority of the people in this room, lest the Lord come tomorrow or the next day and come, Lord Jesus, that would be great. The testimony of 2,000 years of church history is you are going to die. The testimony of all of human existence is that you are going to die. And the question becomes, what does that mean about eternal life? And what does that mean for Christ to never get rid of us. He says, I will lose nothing. I will lose nothing. Listen, friend, as you approach death, as you have seen death work in the lives of people that you know, as you yourself find your bodies, my wife and I talk about this all the time, we're we're not terribly old, we're getting older, our bodies are not the same as they used to be. 
we, we, she heard my shoulder just cracking the other night. She said, man, you're getting old. And I said, eight days older than you, honey. So we're all, we're all getting there, right? We're all moving in that direction. And, and, and the older you are, the more you realize that that train is coming very, very quickly. As that train approaches, the question is, is Christ holding on to you even in that moment? As death approaches, where is the love of Christ? As death approaches, how is Christ hanging on to you? We lose people all the time, and we lose them. We cannot speak to them. We cannot see them. We cannot experience them. We do not get to touch them anymore. The Brubakers moved to the other side of the world, and we can still see them. We can still speak to them. We can still communicate with them. We know that they live. But when people die, we don't get any of that anymore. How great is the reach of our Lord that even in death, in the tomb, he can reach them. He can hold them. He knows them. He is powerful over it. It indicates that he expects death to come for them and that even that will not keep him from them. He will hold on to them even in the power of death. Death's power is not greater than our Lord's hold on you. The depth of Sheol is not deep enough to keep you from Christ. He will hold you fast. Again, Paul in the book of Romans helps us to see this. The end of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists a whole bunch of what's. I don't know why Paul does that. But what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? If you experience those things, you would think, oh man, the love of God has left me. Christ does not hold on to me anymore. In the first world, these things happen. First century world, these things happen. They don't happen much to us, but what if they did? Would the love of Christ leave you? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. It's an interesting phrase. He starts by saying, what will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists all these atrocities that can happen to you. And then at the end he says, no, we're more than conquerors. Those things will try to separate you from Christ. Those things that Satan will put in your path to pry you away from Christ. And, and Paul says, no, 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 you will conquer over those things. You will conquer over them. Why? Because of him who loved us. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such is the power of the love that Jesus Christ has from you, that you will die, you will perish, but his love for you will hang on to you. His hand will grip you tightly. You will never be removed from his love. The grave is not deep enough. The Sin in your life is not powerful enough. Satan is not crafty enough to keep you from your Lord. Jesus is indeed the bread of life. Friend, your bodies in this earth are going to hunger and they are going to thirst. But if you know Christ, you will know a satisfaction that not even the grave can take away. He is the provision of life for you. He is the thing that we need as we wander through a land that cannot give us life but only a facsimile of it. 
but in giving us the bread of life the Father has given us to Christ that we might serve him and know his goodness and to do the will of the Father. For if we never have bread again, if we are to starve and wither, if we never have drink, and we are to dehydrate and die, we always have the Son. And we always will have life because he will raise us up again. And you can have all the bread and you can have all the water and you can have all the wine that you could ever possibly want. And if you don't have the sun, you've got nothing. You can grab all the Easter eggs you want and you can collect all the toys that you can get your paws on and you have nothing but death in your hands. See Christ for who he is. Trust in his name. Eat his body and drink his blood for there is no other bread that can satisfy and there is no other Savior this good. Let us pray. Father, we are right to speak what this crowd says to Jesus. Give us this bread always. But this, this bread is not the bread that perishes. This bread is not the manna that shows up that tastes like coriander seed and honey. This is not the bread that is multiplied. This is the bread of Jesus Christ. Father, give us that bread always. Even as we will soon go to eat to fill our bellies with many of the good things that you yourself have provided for us, let us always remember and give thanks for the only provision that in the end we will ever need, the provision of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you might fill our souls with love for you, with hope in your gospel, and with thankfulness in our hearts. You are the only good God, the mighty one of Israel, and our hope as we wander through the Israel as we wander through the wilderness. May your church be fed, do your will, and trust in you. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.